Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another episode of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. This is Jen, your host today, and I'm here with the author of a really fascinating and impactful and really just stunning book. May I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, so my name is Brian Buckmeyer, and the name of my book is Come Home Safe. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I loved this book so much. It is such a a fascinating and a really, as I said, impactful and very emotional read sometimes. And I just found it so effective. Before we get into it a little bit deeper, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background and your sort of journey as a writer and how it brought you to this book. Yeah. So I am a former homicide public defender at the Brooklyn Legal Aid Society's office. I've, I've been there since 2014. Prior to that, I was in law school. Uh, I'm the oldest of three siblings by a bit. My younger siblings are about 12 years younger than I am. So especially with my brother, it's kind of a older brother slash surrogate father type of relationship. So, and that will come up later on in the interview, I'm sure. Um, along with that, I've been fortunate enough to work at Law and Crime Trial Network as a host there. I am one of the co-hosts of Law and Crime Daily, a nationally syndicated show. I'm also a legal um, contributor at ABC. I've covered the Derek Chauvin trial, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, interviewed civil rights attorneys and families of the victims, uh, as well as covering probably any other case you could think of in the last four or five years. Uh, and now I'm venturing out into being an author. And I think it's a collaboration of being that older brother, public defender, and legal correspondent that really contributed to this book. That's really interesting. And I love how, um, yeah, you're, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, personal and professional things that brought you to, to writing about this and these characters. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the book, its main characters, and perhaps some of the inspiration for them. Um, now that you've told me about your family, I am also, by the way, the oldest of uh, a family, and I have a brother who's 12 years younger than me, too. <laughs> um, so maybe if you could tell me a little bit about how these things all played into how you shape your two protagonists. Yeah, so Olive and Reed, or Olive Reed is the name of my grandmother and of my late grandmother. And so the book is in honor of her. Um, and in wanting to become a parent, which I am now, uh, I knew that one of my children would either be Olive if we had a daughter or Reed as a son. Interestingly enough, the name of the protagonist, Reed, had to be changed because my son is Reed, R-E-I-D, and the book is R-E-E-D. Uh, and the book is very much the idea of my wife and I raising these two children in Brooklyn. And it's split into two different stories where the son is a protagonist in one and the daughter the protagonist in another. And they're going through everyday things. My son taking a subway home with my daughter, my daughter and son going to bodega across the street from the park to go get some drinks uh, while their mother is at the park working out. Uh, but throughout the story, they are accused of a crime. And the idea is how do these young people navigate the world when they're falsely accused of a crime and walking that tightrope of asserting themselves and their rights as best as possible, but also being safe. And it's that back and forth and that struggle that they have. And at the end of each of the story, I wanted to have 
the quote unquote talk, the talk that so many of the people that I'd interviewed say they either have had with their child or are going to have. And I interviewed about 20 or so former prosecutors, defense attorneys, a judge, clerk, one of my former clients that was exonerated or acquitted of a crime, sorry, um, and even my siblings and cousins. Um, so I tried to put as much of it in as possible and, and give people a, a well-rounded view of this of this talk and these experiences. I'm really glad that you brought up the talk because that's a great segue to my next question. Um, it's something I think that um, maybe broadly America is used to hearing about from the perspective of parents, you know, if they hear about it at all, you know, and I think that it's a really powerful move to present it with this child's perspective as well, you know, seeing it from both sides. Um, So you said that you interviewed a lot of people in order to write this book, and you gathered a lot of experiences. And I'm wondering, is this something, did you talk to your own children about this too, you know, outside of the talk, but did you talk about this book with them and what you were doing with it or... So my son is only six months old. So oh, okay. Of- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I knew I was going to have this conversation at one point, but the way, the reason why I think I wrote this from this perspective is this was how the conversation was brought to me. Um, after the death of Elijah McClain, my brother, who is again, 12 years younger than I am, so I'm turning 35. So he's 23. I think he was 19-ish, 18, 19, when he saw Elijah McClain killed and his quote is the quote that's on the website that's in the book um how do i not become the next hashtag uh, those are his words um my brother and i have different fathers we my parents divorced when i was very young um i stepped up and i'm very much his father i'm not sure if you can see it but my tattoo says i am my brother's keeper i'm his legal guardian um, i'm very close with my sister as well in, in the same respect so my brother asking me this question the, the man who taught him how to shave gave him a suit when he graduated. I potty trained him. Um, He asked me in a sense of like, well, you are this figure. How do I not become the next hashtag? Um, And he brought up this point that I I know I've always bugged him about, but I I never had at the top of my head. He's like, well, when I was 13 and 14, you told me never to have my wallet in my back pocket because if I reach my wallet in front of an officer, it could be misconstrued for reaching for a weapon as well. And I always made sure he had his wallet in his front left pocket so it was clearly visible to anyone he was reaching for. And so he came to me as if like, well, you gave me this information, you of course must have the information to stop all black men from being killed by the police. And wow, Um, I've been hit hard before. I was a college soccer player, um, broken a lot of bones, but that one hit really hard. And then knowing that my we wife and I were trying to have a child. And then when we found out we had a son, that's when this book really got expedited because in my mind, it's not a matter of if my son asked me this question, it's a matter of when. And so I feel like I, I had to have the answer for my brother and I had to have some kind of answer for my son. And that's how the book came about. Yeah, there's so much there, I think. And there's so much useful perspective, I think, for, you know, folks like me who didn't have to experience these things as children. Um, The amount of uh, growing up that you have to do in order to have and understand these conversations and then, you know, integrate what you hear is really hard to to imagine, you know, for for a lot of people, I imagine. Um, Something, and that plays into, I think, something that I was really um, 
struck by when I was reading this book is that something that comes up a lot is these children having to prove their innocence. And that comes up over and over again. And that was so important to me because it really like belies sort of like one of the foundational ideas of this country that is like you are innocent until proven guilty, right? And so it really shows like the just disparity in justice and in how people are treated when they get you know, wrapped up in these situations. Um, can you talk a little bit about perhaps how your experiences as well as a public defender maybe played into the depictions of, you know, the justice system and the law enforcement officers that they interact with and how you depict like, um, you know, the system? Because uh, another thing that really struck me was that this is not about like individuals. It's about a system that does this to children. Um, is that something that, you know, uh, you could talk a little bit about? Yeah, so I, I try to piece it together. I I tried to tackle this book in a way that towed the line of like not saying all cops are bad. There are a number of police officers involved in this story, and some are great. Some literally come to the children's aid and be like, "Are you okay? You look like you're roughed up, whatever it may be." And some are horrible. Um, none of the officers do anything that would be considered illegal. None whatsoever. Um, and I didn't want it to be an indictment of an individual, as you said, I want it to be an indictment on how this system can play and prey sometimes on others. Um, while I have the siblings that I've talked about and the son who's only six months old, I've also represented like three to 4,000 clients, uh, a lot of them young black men. And to your point about the innocent until proven guilty, I often tell my clients, that's a concept at trial. That's not a concept in life. That's not how it works. Um, when I'm walking down the street and I have my suit on and my and and I've, I've had this conversation with clients so many times, I can almost say it verbatim. I was like, hey, the only difference between you and me is a thousand dollar suit and a maybe 30, I don't know how much my law school diploma costs, but a very expensive diploma. Um, because when I'm not wearing the suit and you don't know that I'm a legal contributor on ABC, you don't see me on Good Morning America, you don't know that I'm a lawyer, just another black man. And depending on who interacts with me could depend on my safety. And what I tell my clients and what I tell my brother and what I try to put in the book is, well, it's not about who you are as a person. We know that you might be a loving, kind, whoever that is, but the person interacting with you might not see that character the unfortunate reality is the first thing that person is going to see is your race, your gender, your size. I know you can't see it here, but I'm 6'4", 225 pounds. My brother is about 10 or 15 pounds heavier than me, an inch smaller. We're giant, cut. if you see us at a bar, we're the first ones to hug you, the first one to buy you the third drink. We're laughing, we're joking, like I know who we are. And my son, six months old, 30 inches tall. I know he's gonna be as big as us. But I also know how intimidating and scary that is for an officer and how dangerous that can be in our interactions. And so I try to convey that in the book in a way that's not about individuals, but about a system. And I even say in the book, I don't have the time for the system to treat us the way we should be because you are my son today and I have to keep you safe today. Yeah, that is really, really fascinating. And it ties directly to another part of the book that I sort of wrote in the marginal notes as I was reading. There's a part where um, 
Olive, I think, is talking about or thinking about how she has to walk differently and dress differently in order to navigate the world. And that like really struck me, you know, that the like kids have to really kind of be taught early on how to, uh, I guess, work with the way that they're going to be perceived by the system. Um, a lot of these things are things that you also wrote about um, for various outlets and you talk about it on TV and stuff like that. Were there any extra added challenges in um, in fictionalizing it and making it about um, these fictional characters and not about, you know, the stories that we see and the lives that we see being changed by these systems in real life? It, it, I find in being a defense attorney uh, and even a legal contributor, if I'm talking to a jury, Speaking in the abstract doesn't really help. If I'm speaking to an audience on air saying like, well, yeah, theoretically speaking, people who are disadvantaged shouldn't be treated this way. We all agree that. That's that's broad strokes. That's easy. You don't pick up that article. You don't believe a lawyer's words when they say that. But if I open myself up to you and I am authentic in the sense of saying, this book is written because my brother needed to be safe. Then people start to listen and they say, I understand that. I have siblings 12 years younger than I am. I understand that. I have children who are not at an age yet, but that might have to happen to them. And I think that draws people to the conversation in a way that is far more impactful. So the difficulty in writing this book is literally writing a story about my son as he's in the next room and putting myself outside of the story and having him assaulted by cops and even theoretically not being able to protect him. This book should have been written, I think it took me like two and a half years to write. Probably a year and a half was just me walking away and just being like, I can't do this. I can't keep writing about this kid who's not even here yet. And then when he was here, I can't write about this kid who is here. But I think it created a better product. And I think it's more inclined to help people than if I did it the other way. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the difficulty, you know, of having to spend all this time thinking about literally like a parent's worst fear, you know, and then turning that into um, something that another person can read and access on the page is like, it sounds very hard. But I think you're right that it does really uh, result in a, a fantastic finished product. Like the book is really emotionally impactful. And I think that it's very easy to empathize with these these kids, you know, and I think it's so interesting to see these things from their point of view, because I think, as I said before, like usually you, you do hear adult perspectives on these things. Um, was there anything, you know, that you learned during your interviews and your preparation for this book that, you know, made you see things differently? Like I imagine, you know, this is the stuff of your everyday life and the topics that you cover and you think about and you work on. But was there anything that like, blindsided you or that made you consider things in a new way? Uh, yeah, definitely the, the parent aspect. I've always had this conversation as lawyer to client. Uh, I'm speaking to an 18-year-old young man. It's You don't have as much skin in the game. Um, I can tell him, like, dude, dude don't, don't do that. If the cop throws you up against a, a fence, what, what are you fighting back for? It's not like, and I can be somewhat dismissive of the anger that that client has of, well, I am going to fight back. I am angry. This shouldn't happen to me. Um, when it's your child, um, that's a different thing. The other thing too is the children are biracial because my child is biracial. Um, and it was interesting in talking to other parents 
about biracial children. And I got the sense that some of them, and I think I say it sometimes, it's the worry that it's something that I gave them. Because mm -hmm. I know that when, I know when someone looks at my son and he's tall, I will proudly say he's a 6'4 man. Yeah, it's my height. That's me. That's nice. I also play college soccer. And when he was pregnant, when my wife was pregnant and he was kicking, she'd be like, you're kicking again. And I'd be like, hey, that's on me, soccer player. But when I say kick a ball, I'm like, whoo, that's me. <laughs> but when someone treats him as less than who he is because of the color of his skin, I also know that's me. It's not my wife. And in talking to a lot of parents, I felt like a sense of guilt that like I have to have this conversation with my child potentially because of something I gave them. And that felt really hard. And I hope that the book, the one thing that I also realized too, and that my hope for the book is that it connects us and that that's not us. That's not something to take on, but also there's far more of us in this community attempting to find the answers, attempting to teach our kids, attempting to keep themselves. And I think that there should be solace in that this community exists. And I hope that this book connects people. I hope that you read the book and be like, yeah, I've had this conversation with my kid, but maybe not at this depth. And someone's like, yeah, I've had the conversation too. And they get together and they talk because in no means does this book have all the answers. My hope is that this book is just a spark and that all of you who read it far surpass the knowledge that I have put on these pages and we get to a place where we're far better. And I've said it before, I hope that my grandchildren look at this book and laugh and just be like, grandpa, this is a dumb book. Why do we need this book? This is not happening to us anymore. And I say, exactly. I'm good. I'm fine. And that's where I hope this book goes. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I am I'm so excited to put this book in the hands of our patrons and readers I know because it is really important and I think that you know, I love that it sets out these issues and asks questions and really invites the reader to to join you in, in imagining answers, you know, and it is really hopeful to think that maybe, you know, generational generationally, you know, this yes, I hope that your grandkids are, you know, yeah. This, this feels like a relic of a lost time to them, but thank you so much for writing it and for coming to talk to us. I'm, I'm, it was, it was really a lovely read and it will really stay with me. Um, you know, and I, I hope you continue to write in this vein. Do you think you'll write more books, uh, for this audience or? Uh, the hope is yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always got ideas kind of punting around in the head, um, it's it, it's just a matter of I'm really enjoying being a father, really enjoying being a husband at this at this point in my life. Um, the motivation of wanting to keep my family safe and then the support that I got from so many people to try to make this public um, was great. It's just really getting the gears back and getting the stamina to to put out another book. But I I I think it it, it has to happen. It's just a matter of putting the energy in there to, to get it done. <laughs> oh, great. Well, yeah, enjoy, enjoy your new fatherhood for now. But I hope that when you do come back to writing, uh, you'll consider talking to us again, because I really enjoy talking to you about this book. And I can't wait to see what you do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you for amplifying this message in this book as well. It's, it's an honor. You're so welcome. Um, okay, listeners, please, please, please pick up Come Home Safe. Uh, by the time you hear this episode, it will be available at your favorite bookstore or library. So please, please check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. And it is time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. 
Join us for the next episode. Thank you.